Uh, one of the situations where I get nervous is when I'm expected to do a job, when there's expectations on me. I feel the pressure to perform at a certain level. Uh, and I feel it especially uh, when people depend on me, if there's, uh, there's a lot at stake. I think, what if I mess up? What if I disappoint people? That's one situation. But then there's the opposite situation, when I can just relax knowing someone else is looking after it. Uh, someone who knows their job. Uh, for me, you know, the dentist. You know, I can just relax. Maybe that's not everybody. Uh, I can uh, I, I get into a plane and I can just relax. Maybe that's not everybody. Maybe you're someone who can't relax in a plane. But, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about the electrician who's rewiring, you know, the, uh, sorry, the electric, so I can just trust the electrician. Uh, someone else is looking after it. I go to a new city, I don't get nervous because I just I trust the guide who's, who's doing all the work, who knows the city. Uh, two situations, one where you get anxious and one where you can just relax because someone else is in charge of it. Uh, now those are just human situations, but I reckon the same comparison applies in how people relate to God. On the one hand, religion is all about human efforts to please God. Uh, to approach him, to obey him, to satisfy him, to please him. Every other religion, except for Christianity, uh, every other religion puts pressure on people to perform. Acceptance by God depends on what you do. Uh, each religion has a different answer to exactly what you have to do, uh, but they're all about human performance, about our works. And what that does is it leads to doubt, it leads to uncertainty, it leads to pressure. But Christianity, on the other hand, it's all about what Jesus has done. And when we trust that, it just takes the pressure off. We can relax because someone else is in charge. Someone else knows what they're doing and has got it covered. And so what it means is we don't have to come to God in prayer anxious about whether we've earned the right to pray about whether God will listen. And we don't face death and judgment, weighing up our good deeds and bad deeds, uncertain about where we'll spend eternity. It's not like that for the Christian. Uh, it's that, uh, that's the sort of experience that I think Jesus is inviting us into uh, in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying there's work to be done in the Christian life, but he gives us rest as we do it. He gives us joy and confidence because it doesn't all depend on us. There's not this huge burden on our shoulders. Where we are unreliable, and we will be unreliable, Jesus is reliable. Where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Now that's clearly seen, I think, in today's passage, this contrast between Jesus and his disciples. He's predicted uh, back in the uh, earlier the chapter that uh, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. And that's what we see happening today. When the pressure is applied, when the enemies arrive, when fear rises we see that Jesus' closest followers fail. Uh, the sheep flee. 
But through it all, Jesus stands firm. He's steadfast, determined to obey his, uh, his Father because his gaze is fixed on the final destination. It's fixed beyond the cross, beyond the pain and the abandonment to the victory, to the resolution. And so one way of thinking about these verses is we, we, we uh, feel down about them. We think, that's me, I'm Peter, um, I'm the disciples, I'm fearful. But I want to suggest that we think about these verses with joy and confidence instead. Because in them we can see Jesus who is reliable and competent uh, where we are not. Our standing before God depends on him rather than us. So let's rejoice. So remember where we're at. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has just announced at the end of the last section, the hour has come. Uh, the hour that he just prayed, remember, might pass from him that there could be some other way. But he also prays that uh, God's will would be done. He prays for the strength to see it through. And as he's talking, maybe even saying those words, the hour has come, uh, the peaceful quiet is interrupted by the noise of the approaching crowd. Perhaps Jesus actually announces that the hour has come because he can hear the crowd approaching. Perhaps he can see the torches, hear the clank of metal, the thump of the wooden clubs. It's not an orderly arrest uh, being executed. This is more like a mob. Everyone except Jesus sees a rebel, a dangerous rebel leader uh, who needs to be stopped. Even Judas seems to be expecting trouble. He's arranged a secret signal so Jesus can be arrested quickly and quietly without violence. Uh, verse 44, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. And that's what happens. He goes up to Jesus, says Rabbi and kisses him. The men seize Jesus. But verse 47, it's not quite so quick and quiet. One of the disciples has brought a sword. John's Gospel tells us it's Peter. When he sees Jesus being arrested, he reacts. He takes a swipe at whoever is closest. Poor old high priest servant loses an ear. But everyone's got Jesus wrong on both sides, his supporters and his attackers, because he's a different sort of king. So verse 48, he asks a question that cuts through their misunderstanding. Am I leading a rebellion that you come at me with swords and clubs? Is that really who you think I am? After all this time, you think I'm going to retaliate? Verse 49, I haven't been hiding. I've been teaching in the temple courts every day. I've come to bring peace, not war. I've come to bring forgiveness, not hatred. My kingdom is about humility and childlike faith and servanthood. It's not about military might, riches or thrones. He wants his followers to take up a cross, but Peter's taken up a sword instead. But Jesus knows that the ending will be different, that it'll happen just the way God has planned, verse 49, it'll act just as it's been revealed in the scriptures. And so his submission is not giving up, it's not throwing in the towel, his submission is courageous, steadfast obedience. 
Once his followers realise there's not going to be a battle, they, verse 50, they desert him and they flee. Including, verse 51, one man who's so fearful he runs off naked. The mob, presumably, try to grab him and he wriggles out of his robe and runs off naked. He leaves it behind. It's just like Jesus warned the disciples back in chapter 13 and again in chapter 14. While everyone else is rattled and anxious and uncertain and reactive, while everyone else is a storm, Jesus is this island of calm. Everything's happening just as the scriptures have said. He trusts his Father. His followers can't see it. They're seeing anarchy, not order. They're seeing plans unravelling, not prophecy fulfilled. They're seeing a kingdom crumbling, uh, not a kingdom coming. It's often like that with us, isn't it? Uh, With our lives and the difficulties we go through, plans that are upset. Uh, With our head, we we acknowledge, yes, God's in charge. God rules. Uh, We know with our heads that he's got everything planned, that he's working all things for good. For those who love him have called according to his purpose. But when our lives seem chaotic and confused, we run around anxious and grumbling and fearful, as if our world's falling apart. Instead of facing it with faith and confidence, because it's happening the way God has planned it. Well, back to Jesus. Verse 53, they take him to the high priest's house. He's assembled a a religious court. Uh, They're the Sanhedrin. If it was the full Sanhedrin, there'd be 70 religious leaders up against Jesus. Oh, don't forget Peter. He's there too. He's following behind. I can just imagine him sort of sneaking from one dark doorway to another, following the, the mob, feeling outnumbered and threatened. But at least he's there, unlike the rest. Do you remember his promise Uh, back at uh, the Last Supper? He said, even if everyone else deserts you, Lord, I never will. Well, it's true, he he hasn't. He finds his way into the courtyard of the high priest's house with the guards and he he sits around the fire. It's close enough that probably he he can hear what's going on inside. He's probably the eyewitness to the, the proceedings yet he's near enough to the exit to make a quick escape. 55, he can hear the false witnesses, people who've been paid to lie to Jesus. Problem is, everything's such a rush, it seems like they haven't even got their stories straight. Uh, They don't even agree. But through it all, Jesus remains silent, like a lamb to the slaughter. The high priest is surprised. Verse 60, why won't he defend himself? Are you not going to answer? What's this testimony these men are bringing against you? Answer your accusers. Just like it was a normal trial, except of course it's not a normal trial because the verdict's already been decided. And so Jesus remains silent. Finally, the high priest gets tired of avoiding the, the big question and so here it comes in verse 61, Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? It's the key issue. It's the issue of Jesus' identity. 
and, and especially his relationship to God the Father. Finally, Jesus answers. He's been quite coy and uh, uh, up to this point, but now uh, he answers the question. He is the Messiah. I am the Christ. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He doesn't just say who he is. He outlines what he will do. And it won't be to raise an army to threaten the Romans. Do you remember where he's quoting from? Daniel chapter 7. He's already described to his disciples that that's what will happen. Back in chapter 13, that the Son of Man will come on the clouds into God's presence and God will give him all authority and glory and power and every nation will worship him. In chapter 13, it seems to be referring to Jesus' return on Judgment Day at the end of time. But notice here, he says that the high priest will see that happen. which could be the end of time, but it seems to me Jesus is referring to a more immediate fulfilment, something that's going to happen soon. I think he's seeing the resurrection, his vindication, his victory, as when his kingdom comes, when he's crowned by his Father. I think that's what he's looking forward to uh, when he said at the Last Supper, do you remember 1425, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew, in the kingdom of God. He's looking forward just a few days until the resurrection. A drink to celebrate his victory. That's the plan. It's far more glorious than a military rebellion or a religious renovation of the temple. But that's enough for the high priest. He's heard enough. It's a claim uh, to be equal to God. To, to claim to sit at God's right hand is to, is to be equal to God. He tore, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need to hear any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And all the leaders condemn him worthy of death. Verse 65, some spat on him, they blindfolded him, struck him with fists and mockingly command him prophesy. What's ironic is he, he's just prophesied you will see the Son of Man sitting. That's a prophecy. That will come true. He's done it. And in fact, the very blows he's suffering, he's prophesied about. Back in chapter 10, he said, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. From verse 66, the camera zooms back to Peter. There's Peter sitting in the courtyard. And Peter will face his own trial, if you like, his own set of questions. And once again, I think Mark wants us to draw the comparison between Jesus and his reliability and, and Peter and his lack of reliability. And we've seen a few of these Mark sandwiches. Do you remember them? How, introduces A and then we come to B and then we come back to A. We've already seen Peter in verse 54 and then we see Jesus and now we come back to Peter. Uh, verse 66, the, a servant girl recognises him around the fire and says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Uh, Peter denies it and he backs away. He gets closer to the exit. 
further perhaps from the light of the fire. The girl persists, verse 69, this time speaking to the, to the others who are gathered around the fire. Hey guys, he's one of them. Don't, don't any of you recognise him? And again Peter denies it. A little while later, some of the others join in. Maybe they've had a close look at him and, and they say, of course you are. We can tell by your accent that you're from Galilee. You can't hide that. Verse 71, Peter realises he'd better put on a good show. He'd better make up with, in, in volume and intensity what he lacks in credibility. And he calls down curses on himself. And he swears to them, I swear I don't know him. May God curse me if I tell a lie. It's not a simple no, is it? And just then the rooster crows. It, it's night time, something like 3am, the dawn is still ahead. Peter remembers Jesus' words, before the rooster crows you will disown me three times and he breaks down and weeps. And that's the end of our passage for today. Jesus has called on Peter to deny himself and yet Peter has denied Jesus instead. It's black as night and, and the setting reflects the mood. It seems like everything's over for Peter, for Jesus. Uh, but the kingdom hasn't come and the dawn is still ahead. So a passage finishes with Peter failing. But Jesus hasn't and Jesus won't. He will see it through to the end. Uh, he will be crowned on a cross. But it'll be a victorious death because, of course, after the cross comes the empty tomb when God raises him and declares his obedience acceptable and declares him king and saviour. So there's the comparison, the failure of Jesus' followers and the faithfulness of Jesus. Judas, who betrayed him, the disciples who abandoned him, Peter, who denies him. And as we think about this passage, it's, it's right for us to, to be circumspect, to, to put ourselves in their shoes, to recognise our responses of denying and being ashamed of him and fearful, and to be careful that, that we don't do that and to challenge ourselves. But we should also be rejoicing at Jesus because our standing doesn't depend on our faithfulness but rather on his faithfulness. God doesn't choose us because we are worth it. Our sins are not removed because you've earned it. Our prayers are not heard because you've been good. Our life is not turning out well because we're being rewarded. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he had to speak against their pride and their, their sense of entitlement. He wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 1, and he could be saying it to us as well. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because of you, it's because of him that you're in Jesus. Christ Jesus who's become for us 
wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. We are not worthy, but Jesus has become those things for us. Therefore, as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's all of Jesus, it's nothing of us. That's why we sing, isn't it? Christians sing because we've got something to sing about. We, we sing with thanks, we sing with joy, we sing words like these ones. Hopefully you can read them. It's an old hymn, but I reckon maybe it needs a new tune. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone and now he pleads before the throne. My dear almighty Lord, my conqueror and my king, your scepter and your sword, your sovereign grace I sing. Yours is the power. Behold, I sit in willing bonds beneath your feet. My advocate appears for my defence on high. The Father hears his voice and lays his anger by. Not all that hell or sin can say shall turn his heart, his love away. Now let my soul arise and tread the devil down. My captain leads me out to conquest and a crown. A feeble saint shall win the day, though death and hell obstruct the way. Let's pray. Our Father, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, there have been times when we have acted like Peter, when we've acted like the other disciples. Uh, and we repent of that. Uh, you deserve better. But we also want to rejoice that where we fail, Jesus didn't. He is our pioneer, our captain, our lord, our brother, our master, the one who leads the way. And so we follow him. He has become for us righteousness, holiness and redemption. And so we rejoice in him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.